You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Nathan Gilmore, a sometimes incorrigible servant of the true Christ Jesus of Nazareth, to the faithful listeners of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network, grace and peace. First, I thank God that each of you has downloaded this episode so that we can join again the conversation that you've been gracious enough to join time and again every time you download one of our shows. Therefore, you know that as we welcome Father Thomas Esposito to the show, our conversation about his recent book, The Letters of Fire, is not an occasion for eavesdropping, but for engagement, and thus I await your writing back to us. And I welcome Father Thomas into our circle. Father Thomas, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. It's a privilege to join you on this noble network. Very good. Well, I want you to start out talking about the shape of this book. It's not a chapter-by-chapter, uh, chapter, beginning-to-end sort of project. Uh, tell them about the form of this book and how the epistles of Pope John Paul I inspired them. Sure. The form of the book is a series of independent letters, which are separate from each other and can be read on their own. I am the writer of each of those letters, and I write to various historical figures and literary characters and social networks on occasion. The idea for the form of the book came from my reading of a book by Pope John Paul I, as you mentioned, when he was Patriarch of Venice in the early 1970s. He would write a letter to some historical character or literary person as a means of accessing some idea of the Christian life or spirituality in a way that was accessible to people in his diocese. And I was very struck by that form of dialogue, if you will. It was a very accessible one and a pleasant one to, to read along. And I basically decided to copy him. So I'm a, a total copycat. I admit that in my, my letter to him. And each chapter, as I said, is separate, has its own unique idea, usually inspired by a theme in that person's life or a passage from a poem or book that they wrote. And I want to get at a particular virtue or essential theme of the relationship between faith and reason or Christianity and modern secular culture. And so I think the the epistolary format gives a somewhat fresh take on the nature of dialogue and the importance of dialogue in our, our culture today. Mm -hmm. Well, the best way to learn about this book for our listeners to find out about it so that they can, of course, go out and buy it uh, is to hear about some of these letters. So your first letter to a fictional character goes to one Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter novels. What about the young Quicksilver wizard warrants a letter, and what bit of biblical lore does she add to those novels? Well, the Hermione letter was one of the final letters to make the collection. 
I had been holding out on reading the Harry Potter novels for a good long while, thinking that they were mere kids' play and wouldn't be interesting to me. But in the span of about seven weeks, a couple summers ago, I was enthralled by the storyline and read all seven of them quite quickly. And I was struck in particular by Hermione's loyalty to Harry, in particular, the way that she would maintain a friendship with him, even when he became a total punk in the middle books. And the, the letter to her, I'll be honest, had more to do with my need to write to more female characters. I felt that that was somewhat lacking in the collection as a whole near the end. And I settled on her in part because of the overt Christian themes I found in the Harry Potter novels. And I thought reaching out to Hermione was a good way of of making those elements known to to my readers. In particular, the, the scene at the gravesite of Harry's parents in the last book is so poignant for obvious reasons. But what I focus on is the quote on the tombstone of Harry's parents. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Harry understands that in a very negative phrase as a, a reference of sorts to the Death Eaters who are trying to, to kill him once and for all in the service of, of Voldemort. But Hermione becomes, in that scene, a biblical scholar or a pastor of sorts, who teaches Harry the true meaning of that phrase. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, is a quote from 1 Corinthians 15. And she interprets it for him as a reference to life after death, the possibility of being gathered together with his parents beyond the grave, and not as a reference to the Death Eaters. And so I wanted readers to be very clear that even in a book of magic wizardry such as Harry Potter, there are definite Christian elements. That one is the most overt since it quotes scripture literally, but even things like the Patronuses, the idea of having a patron saint is very prevalent throughout the, the Harry Potter books. And so I wanted that to be made known as well. Very good, very good. Well, you don't limit yourself to fictional characters. You also uh, deal with, I don't even know what to call Lucy, a, uh, a projected <laughs> ancestor of the human species, possibly. Uh, right. But I thought that your pairing of your letter to Lucy with your letter to Narcissus uh, was quite interesting because they gave me an occasion to reflect both on the human anxiety that comes from self-regard and in the ways that our animal bodies lead us to anxieties about our origin. As you think about this collection of letters, what place do you give these meditations on what makes us anxious? Mm. Well, I'll begin by admitting that the collection of characters is pretty eclectic. I'm somewhat of a, a weird fellow, and my brain travels in, in many creative and perhaps unusual directions. Narcissus, obviously, is the 
mythological character who falls in love with his reflection in a pond and eventually dies of starvation because he can't pull himself away from loving his own image in the in the water. And Lucy is not a his well she's a historical character but a rather and original pre, and prehistorical and pre and prehistorical <laughs> indeed she's a fossil in a, in essence that was discovered in Ethiopia in the the mid 1970s and is thought to be a link in the evolutionary timeline of of homo sapiens our our species the idea of of anxiety is a distinctly modern one, I believe. I think we have an awareness of our own rootlessness being in a secular culture that isn't so fond of the Christian roots of Europe and and America. Already in the 17th century, Pascal was huge on recognizing this fact of our anxiousness in not being aware of our proper identity as both animal and and spiritual. So the animal origins that I talk about with Lucy, or in regard to our human being, give us part of our human dignity, in that we are connected to the earth, we are connected to the animal kingdom that is around us. But everything hinges on the fact that we are more than that. We are embodied spirits. We are rational. And we have an immense dignity given to us by our ability to know ourselves, to think, and to ponder the possibility that there is something or someone above us, guiding us, that has given us this dignity and perhaps a goal that we should be working towards. Now with Narcissus, the emphasis on dignity hones in on its abuse in the self-worship that Narcissus engages in with his own image. And yet the fact that the human being is the image of God, according to Genesis 1, is not obliviated or is not forgotten in that instance of Narcissus worshiping his own self. There is something holy about the human being. It simply gets distorted in the the Narcissus tale. And so I focus in the letter to Narcissus on what a proper understanding of the image of God would be in our in our human being. So those letters about the origins of our image of our dignity as human beings tie in also with the the question about anxiety regarding who we are and where we come from. Mm -hmm. And I found it interesting, too, because of my own situation. I teach at a largely evangelical college uh, Mm. where things tend to be an all-or-nothing wager when it comes to origins. Either one entirely denies biological evolution or one goes entirely the other direction and says that human beings are simply another animal species uh, with nothing of particular importance about us. So I, I mm-hmm. appreciated the Lucy letter especially in that it held both poles of that dialectic to be true and actually uh, dwelt on that contradiction a bit. 
is that something that comes from your own theological training? Is that something that is more broadly Catholic in its mindset? What is it that leads you to think about and to dwell on Lucy as a Christian? Mm, that's a great question. I think my my Catholic formation contributes to my desire, I guess, to find a synthesis between biology and, and theology. Mm-hmm. We, we speak of the Catholic both and in many different uh, contexts. Here, it would be connecting the the bodily nature of our life here on earth with the spiritual nature. Faith and reason would be another one, the scripture and tradition, all, all of those things. But the the synthesis of those comes ultimately in the person of Christ. So mm-hmm. in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, you have man and woman as the image of God. That gets refined in Colossians 1 and, and Ephesians 1 as well, with, with Christ being the image of the invisible God for us. And that's an embodied image. It's something visible, something tangible. That gives our bodily nature an automatic dignity that even Lucy had, we might say, if she is indeed our our biological ancestor, that there's a preparation of sorts going on in even the animal kingdom as mm. salvation history itself gets going and unfolds, uh, culminating ultimately in Christ. Very good. Well, I want to turn to the cinema for a bit. I'll admit that I've only seen Gladiator twice, and when I watch it, I tend to overlook the main character, Maximus, on my way to thinking about broader thematic questions of politics and public will and the ways that entertainment can make both of those irrelevant. But you wrote a letter to Maximus, and it forces me to focus on this strong contrast you lay down between a life that's defined by grand, violent moments on one hand, and a life on the other hand whose character grows from long practices of little virtues, as you call them. How did this character help you see something important? I see Maximus as a wonderful model for young boys and teenage males in particular. So this letter is is almost exclusively geared toward men. It's an appeal to our our virility. So vir in Latin is is the word for man. Virtus, which is where we get our word virtue, is literally man strength. And I was trying to ponder the connection between the male identity and virtue being some good operative habit that is characteristic of a life well lived. In the story of Gladiator, you obviously have this big, muscular, tough warrior figure who overthrows an empire. And that clearly appeals to the masculine urge to destroy things, but also to earn glory by his accomplishments in in battle. But we, in the modern day, in our own contemporary society, don't really have the opportunity to go out and and fight many battles. And we often, I think, take refuge in the cinema as a way of 
unleashing vicariously those those energies that that we want to to convey to the world, namely that that we're we're men, we're tough. But I see in Maximus proper virtue, pagan virtue, because he's a Roman and not a Christian. But I think he offers a foundation for young boys and and teenagers and even adult males who are thinking about what it means to be a man, an honorable, strong, and virtuous man. The true hero, I would say, is one like Maximus, who who is not afraid, who stands up to injustice and, and tyranny and whatnot. But even today, examples such as firemen, police officers, fathers who are devoted to their children, it's not a matter of just having muscles and being a tough guy, but it's a matter of man strength, virtue, in honoring your wife, being a duteous citizen of your of your city, of your country, and of bringing glory to God, ultimately, by the way you, you live your life in an unselfish way. Very good. Well, your letter to Noah... Uh, engages uh, not mainly with the text of Genesis, but mainly with his career in Midrash, uh, especially in the passages in which rabbis wonder why why such a righteous man did not warn any of his neighbors to avoid the coming destruction. Do you think that that line of thought might lie behind 1 Peter's Midrashic addition to the story of Noah, that he was a preacher of righteousness? And more broadly, what does this letter to Noah explore regarding, regarding Bible reading more broadly? Mm. So the the interpretation of of Noah that really fascinates me was presented in a book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I don't know if your readers are are familiar with him, but he was the former chief rabbi of of London, and he's a a fantastic writer. the The book that I found this interpretation in was To Heal a Fractured World, and I would. Highly recommend that to to everyone. But he comments on the Midrashic, so the rabbinic tradition, that criticizes Noah for being silent and not extending the refuge of the ark to to his neighbors. He only puts his family members in in the ark while everyone else drowns. And the Christian tradition usually sees in Noah this positive figure. He's he's called a righteous man. First Peter and Second Peter speak of him in, in positive tones. But Rabbi Sachs and the the authors of Genesis Rabbah, this Midrashic text, take him to task for not looking out for his his fellow men beyond the the confines of his family. I really have no idea whether the authors of First and Second Peter had that tradition in mind. Um, I know First Peter three speaks about baptism as the the means of salvation through water for mm. Christians, and Noah being the the example of salvation by water in the Old Testament um, gets gets a shout out there. In uh, in Second Peter, he's considered an example of of righteousness, 
for us. So it, a figure from an ancient story in the book of Genesis is offered by the author Second Peter to his readers as an example. And I think what I learned from this focus on Noah, this reflection on, on his role, whether positive or negative, is that both the rabbis and the patristic tradition in, in the church put people into the story of salvation. Right? It's not a story that took place in the long distant past and no longer applies or speaks to the believers of the present day. Those, those stories are rather an opportunity for, for dialogue and, and meditation on your own response to a situation like that. And so what I really enjoyed about Rabbi Sachs' interpretation and my own musings on, on Noah was this opportunity to take a text from the far-flung past and think about the way it can be lived out today and applied in, in my own life. It's interesting because when I teach in church settings, uh, especially among the young, but I mean among older folks too, I mean, if I ask them, you know, is Noah a story that has a good or a bad ending, generally speaking, they'll say it's a good one because Noah and his family make it out. And then I say, okay, you know, let's say that you were in a situation in which everyone that you know, except for your nuclear family, suddenly died. Would that be mm -hmm. a good or a bad story? And that, you know, I, I appreciate this letter because it's the same sort of thing. It, it forces you to take a step back and look at what actually happens in this story and realize that this is, um, at the very least, a tragedy on the order of the book of Job and possibly even more of one. So exactly. as far as that goes, I mean, you know, uh, in your own devotion, I mean, how does this reading of Noah sit next to sort of a more traditional first and second Peter kind of take on that character? Mm. In part, I, I would appeal to the, the movie that recently came out called Noah featuring mm. a Russell Crowe. You couldn't tell I'm a big Russell Crowe fan. Yeah, I was going to say he keeps recurring in this interview, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, the, the movie Noah is very harsh <laughs> and and brute in its presentation of what life must have been like back in the day. And I think it's good to recall that these patriarchs and, and early figures in, in salvation history are not simply gilded saints. They are flesh and blood human beings like us who who can and do make mistakes. I mean, some of the lives of the the Israelite heroes make that obvious. But with someone such as Noah, Rabbi Sachs picks up on the possibility of, of Noah's survivor guilt in that there's a strange story at the end of the Noah cycle in which he gets drunk. Rabbi Sachs interprets that as a possible um, explanation for the guilt he felt by surviving while so many others perished. 
And so I don't know if I'm really answering your your question or not, but I think the the story of Noah and the biblical figures are so bottomless in that they can end up reading us in a sense mm. when we allow them to, when we ask for inspiration in bringing them into our own day, incorporating them, incarnating them in some way. They have the ability to to open insights into our own selves that we might have ignored if we simply read them as another story or or just ignored them altogether. Good, good. We write a letter to Confucius in the middle of this book, uh, and I'm going to pronounce this word as I see it in the middle of a former Chinese president, uh, but it introduced me to the notion of Zhao, a virtue so specifically Confucian that the language of Chaucer and Shakespeare can't contain it in one word. What do Christian readers stand to learn from Confucius's particular counterpart to maybe a Roman libertas? I think the the Confucian notion of Chao, I, I, I don't know Chinese, so your guess is as good as mine. Either, but I remember Deng Xiaoping, so. I, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll go, we'll go with Chao. Very good. I think, it, I think it's similar to the... Latin word pietas, in its emphasis on honoring your father and mother, basically. Confucius has this really cool notion of, of Chao as the, the building block of, of society. Namely, if you are devoted to your parents, if you honor them, if you bring them in to live with you when they're old, you have the makings of a healthy society, one in which peace among generations is paramount and in which the generations can can learn from each other. That ties in very beautifully to the distinctly Christian notion of the family as the backbone of society, in that the older generations are not simply supposed to be shuffled off and forgotten about so that you, the the sons and, and grandsons and granddaughters, can live as you please. Um, I was reflecting on the fairly widespread reality in America today of our sending our grandparents to, to nursing homes, as well as the, the diaspora reality of of many children who want to get away from home for college and end up moving to different cities and end up seeing their parents and grandparents maybe once a year or twice a year. You know, I myself have done that <laughs> to my own parents, but I don't think it's a terribly positive reality that that is indeed widespread today in our culture because it, it weakens those those bonds between parents and grandparents. And I, I wish there was a way of, of fixing that somehow so that the, the, the pietas, the devotion we owe to our parents and grandparents could be uh, more properly expressed. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I want to turn to a, a long letter that you wrote and one that kind of wanders around. You give some commentary on some particularly ugly architecture. You talk about Mark <laughs> Twain. Uh, you kind of wander all over the place. 
in other words, things that I never would have expected in a letter to Joan of Arc. Um, <laughs> talk a little bit about the particular and the tragic character of Sam Clemens and his devotion to the French saint, and why is it that Joan of Arc inspired such a sprawling letter? Mm. I'll take it as a compliment, your, your statement that, that I go all over the place in, in that, <laughs> that letter. Um, you're right. There's a combination of Joan of Arc's life, a pilgrimage I made to Rouen, the uh, site of her martyrdom in, in northern France, as well as Mark Twain's lifelong fascination with her. I, don't, I myself was not aware that Twain wrote a biography of Joan of Arc until I was already in the, the monastery that I live in. But I read that his his biography, which reads like a novel, and it's a wonderful book. He himself called it far and away the best, his the favorite book, his best book that he ever wrote, even though it's, it's so obscure and relatively um, not well known to his readers. I think Mark Twain saw in Joan a beautiful creature who was given a w wonderfully awesome mission in this life. He called her easily the greatest creature ever to walk this earth, except for Jesus Christ. That's fairly high praise coming from someone who was clearly not a fan of Christianity or God or things things spiritual, that being Mark Twain. And so I, I meditate in this this letter on the reason why Twain would be so so drawn to her. And I don't really have a, a definitive answer, but my sense is that he was so captivated by the radical nature of her life, a totally unique life, this peasant girl who becomes general of an army and, and vanquishes a mighty military opponent, just doesn't happen in in today's society. But he's also very much aware of the tragedy of her life and that very worldly and corrupt people ended up putting her to death. Ecclesiastical figures ended up putting her to death and, and excommunicating her, burning her at the stake. And I think that interplay of her fidelity to her call was mystifying and alluring to, to Mark Twain at, at the same time. Um, and the, the weird architecture that, that you mentioned is present in, in Rouen over the, the site of her, her martyrdom, this terribly ugly neo-bad... <laughs> neo architecture of a church was put up with ugly green and black fish scale um, appearances and and shingles. It, it's, it's just a monstrosity. And I was disappointed severely when I arrived at the spot expecting to you know, pay homage to the Great Joan and being disappointed instead with, with brutal architecture. But... Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's the, the gist of that letter to Joan. Well, and it's interesting because the way that you present that letter, you have uh, structures that have uh, 
for lack of a better phrase, an institutional piety, at least implied in them. They are churches, uh, but that have nothing inherently worthy about them. But then on the other hand, you have a very worthy book by Mark Twain that doesn't seem to be inspired by anything resembling piety. Uh, so, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was fascinating that, you know, those contradictions, you kind of brought them together on both ends of your Joan of Arc letter. Um, I mean, it, as a figure, I mean, you know, because Joan's story is one of very mundane corruption as well as inexplicable providential historical act, um, mm-hmm. I mean, even b- before you read Mark Twain's book, I mean, you know, was she a figure whose contradictions drew you to her as she, as she drew Mark Twain? Mm. I have to be honest in saying that I consider Joan to be a great historical figure, but she was French, and I did not have a proper appreciation for the French, whether the language or the culture or its its history, really until I... I paid a visit to France and and also read Twain's biography of her. I knew that the basic contours of of her life, but didn't exactly know just how remarkable of of a leader she was and how faithful of a saint she was, given the rampant corruption and worldliness of the the clergy and and bishop of of her area. I I find her to be truly amazing and, and, and inspiring. Well, to stick with the medieval for a moment here, you talk about Franciscan mission, you talk about monastic approaches to Christian-Muslim relations, you talk about an appeal to common reason, and you talk about all of these in your letter to Sultan Malik al-Kamil. Who was this medieval figure, and what does your letter to him find that might be of help to Americans obsessed with 11 September 2001 and Paris attacks and other sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Probably no one has heard the name Sultan Malik al-Kamil, except for a very few people who are familiar with the life of St. Francis of Assisi. And it was through Francis that I got to know this Sultan figure. He lived at the time of, of Francis, the late 12th, early 13th centuries. And he was the Sultan of Egypt during the Fourth Crusade, in which the, the Christians of, of Europe were making efforts to recapture Jerusalem and the, the Holy Land. Francis of Assisi was such an awesome maverick. He decided that he wanted to convert the Muslims <laughs> as as part of his mission. And so he gets on a a crusader boat, goes down to Egypt, and dares to approach the enemy camp, claiming that he wants a meeting with the sultan. Here he is in this dark brown robe. He has a a confrere next to him, but he's totally unarmed. He distances himself from the Christian generals, the cardinals that were engaging in that that crusade, and just wants to speak to the sultan. That alone is a truly compelling story, and it makes Francis all the more 
neat, I think. But his dialogue with, with the Sultan, even though we don't have the, the transcript of their conversation, is a model, I think, for Christian-Muslim debate today. The reason why the Franciscans are the Catholic presence in the Holy Land today, in Israel, is largely due to Francis's outreach to the Sultan. He recognized in Francis a very humble, fearful man of God, and he acknowledged his gratitude to Francis's for Francis's visit by allowing his friars to set up shop in the land of Israel that was occupied by by the Muslims because the Crusaders didn't get it. In terms of Christian-Muslim dialogue today, I, I see that relationship between the Sultan and Francis, again, as, as an example. The hope, I don't think, can be or, or should be to convert the other side, but rather should allow the dialogue partners to see in the other human beings created in the image of God, and in that way, give a little sliver of hope that we might be able to avoid a, a cataclysmic clash of civilizations or a terrible war of ignorance in addition to, to arms. And in that, in that same letter, I bring in a couple other witnesses, if you will. One is a Trappist monk named uh, Father Christian de Cherget. He was the prior of a Trappist monastery in Algeria in the mid-1990s. And he was martyred by um, Islamic militants and Algerian uh, nationalists. But his last will is one of the most amazing testaments to uh, his Christian faith that, that you will ever read. It's a classic of of spirituality. And he speaks of forgiving his eventual killers, but he also speaks of his desire to gaze with God upon the children of Islam as God sees them. Now for a, a Christian monk to say that about a group of people whom he dearly loved and lived with in Algeria is quite remarkable and rather uh, different from many of the voices that are heard today in America calling for the exclusion of Muslims, the, the deportation of Muslims, etc. So I think there's a, a great deal of hope chalked up in that in that testament of, of Christian. And the I know I'm rambling here, but the last part of that letter is a reflection on a speech Pope Benedict XVI gave in 2006 called the, the Regensburg Address. He made a lot of Muslims mad at the outset of that speech by quoting a Byzantine emperor to the effect that the Prophet Muhammad brought nothing but the sword in his, in his life and in, in his mission. But what the Pope was getting at in that speech was not a blanket condemnation of, of Islam, but an extension of a hand 
to reflect on the Islamic tradition about faith and reason. And I think it's the greatest discourse that Pope Benedict gave while he was Bishop of Rome. And I, I would hope that readers of my letter to the Sultan would would take an interest in that speech Pope Benedict gave and, and read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I do remember that. I was a graduate student when the Pope gave that address, and I remember seeing the outrage. You know, these were the uh, early days of social media rage. Um, mm-hmm. And then going and reading the speech for myself and thinking, okay, why, why in the world would you be angry at this? There are so many... <laughs> good things to be angry about in the world. Why do you pick this? And I've, I've been right. asking the same for the last 10 years, I fear. <laughs> yeah. In a sense, the, the violence that came in response to his speech proved his point, <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and yet the the invitation to dialogue stands, and it's a, it's a critical one for Muslim-Christian relations. Mm-hmm. I thought your turn to Mother Earth, uh, again, one of those characters who's not quite fictional, somewhat mythic, uh, you know, a, an entity of her own, if you will. I think it combines mm-hmm. a strong sympathy for the people of all the ages, even the modern neo-pagans who find in Earth the great goddess, and also a distinctly Catholic vision of the Holy Virgin as a mother more worthy of veneration. Tell our listeners about this letter. It was one of my favorites in the book. Mm-hmm. Some of the letters have autobiographical details based on my own life experience, and this was certainly one of them. When I was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight, I was in church for school, and the liturgist made us all sing a song with the refrain, the earth is our mother, we must take care of her, and then that in- that included uh, an Indian dance in our in our pews, which was a lot of fun for me as a child, but which really infuriated my mother, who <laughs> was, was in the congregation. And I remember her uh, talking to me after school about the, the mass and that song. And she was very angry. She's 100% Irish, so she has a, a nice, healthy temper that can get going. And she said... The earth is not your mother. <laughs> and that memory has obviously lasted with me. And so that acts as the springboard for my letter to Mother Earth. I've also been teaching a course on world religions in the last few years at our Cistercian Prep School and the University of Dallas. And one of the early chapters of the course is devoted to primitive religions, those thoughts and and groups of people that worship the earth as as a mother as the recipient of of seed from the sky that generates life in the form of plants and and vegetation my curiosity above all with with mother earth was why our ancestors and even people today think of the earth as a goddess of sorts or in in feminine terms at the very least and i think there's an element of comfort that that comes from pondering the the earth as our mother as as our comforter as as a caregiver 
But ultimately, the phrase Mother Earth simply isn't appropriate because the Earth is not a person. And for a mother to be truly comforting, you know, personhood is, is a rather essential quality. And that leads me to ponder a more worthy mother of, of veneration and, and attention, and that would be the mother of Jesus, whose son overcomes the mortality that is part of our earthbound existence, and who, who points us to the proper object of worship, which would be God, who created the earth and who wants us to understand it as a means of giving praise to him rather than praising the the created thing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, and again, this is coming from my own day-to-day work, you know, working with uh, largely evangelical college students. Um, you know, I mean, as you may or may not know, I don't know how much time you spend around evangelicals. One of the great uh, anxieties, to return to that word, of evangelicals about Catholicism is is precisely the veneration of Mary among the saints. Um, what would you mm-hmm. have to say to my students, because I know some of them listen to this show, uh, that would ease some of that anxiety, perhaps? Well, I'll go. I'll go biblical, <laughs> since that's the the common ground between Catholics and evangelicals, and say that if you acknowledge Jesus as your your brother, since we are all sons in the Son, according to Romans, then Mary is your mother too, and she should be recognized as such. That doesn't mean that she has to be worshipped. Catholics do not worship Mary. She's a creature just like any of us. But she is the most obedient of God's creatures and the the chosen vessel, the new Ark of the Covenant, through which God elected to bring salvation to us. And from the Catholic point of view, she is worthy of veneration for that reason. She is a, a refuge that we can fly to because she, she comforts us. And those two verses in in Luke chapter 2 that speak of her guarding these mysteries and pondering them in her heart make her a model of prayer for for us. She was the one, after all, who was with Jesus for his entire life, not simply during his public ministry. And therefore, she has much to to teach us. One of the only uh, things she says in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, is at the wedding of Cana, do whatever he tells you. She speaks to the, the head waiter. And from our Catholic tradition, that indicates not only that she points us to her son, which is obvious and, and essential, but that she also has a role in, in bringing us to him. And that shouldn't be overlooked um, by by evangelicals. So I guess my basic statement would be an invitation to evangelicals to, to reconsider Mary. She doesn't have to be for Catholics only. And there are obviously some details that confuse evangelicals and that they're rightly wary of that would take more time 
to answer than we have here, but I would simply invite them to, to ponder the way in which Mary can teach them something about discipleship. Very good. Well, we've talked about three of the strange women of your book, Hermione uh, and Joan of Arc and <laughs> Mother Earth. I, I, I would be remiss, though, if I neglected uh, a fourth woman to whom you write, namely Facebook, uh, and you write to her as a particular sort of woman, uh, the one, the sort that you encounter at, at your first high school dance. What good traits of Facebook make her so dangerous? Uh, that was a very fun letter to write, I must, I must admit. For a long time, I had avoided falling into the clutches of, of Facebook because I was convinced that she was an evil temptress woman who would take away all my free time and destroy my independence of social media and prevent me from being an authentic human being. <laughs> and so that led me to the analogy of a timid, pimply freshman boy at his first high school dance who wants to stay as far away from those girls as possible and yet is still attracted to them. And so eventually I, I bit the bullet and signed up to, uh, to court Lady Facebook. And I'm glad I did because it has given me the opportunity to reconnect with many friends from grade school, high school, college. Um, I studied in Rome for five years working on my doctorate and, and Facebook is a great way of, of keeping in touch with them. The good trait of Facebook, in other words, is the way it acts as a bridge, connecting people from all over the world simultaneously. That's a, it's a wonderful thing. The danger that I perceive in that is one, that it can be a, a total time waster. <laughs> and I succumb to that quite frequently, I, I must confess. But it can also lead us to create superficial images of ourself. Right? When we post pictures or uh, offer messages on our wall, we usually only want them to be positive so that people think we have this happy-go-lucky existence, we're, we're upbeat, we're, we're go-getters. And if we allow that self-image that we construct on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everything else, if we allow that image to be the only way we think of ourselves, we are essentially in the same boat as Narcissus, falling in love with a shadow, with some superficial construct that we've made of ourselves and ignoring our deeper selves. Now, that obviously is philosophical in nature. Um, but I approach Facebook as, as a lady whom I courted and I'm still courting, fully aware that, um, she has many wonderful gifts to offer me, but I always have to be aware to, to limit myself and not, not give in fully to, to all of her wiles. Very good. Very good. I yeah I'm I'm a professor who lets students add me on Facebook, and I have to admit my favorite sort of post uh, is the one from the student who posts on Facebook that he doesn't care what people think of him. 
Mm. (laughs) Every every once in a while, I, I will I will have that student in my office, and I. I said, you do realize that if I ever met someone who didn't care what I thought of them, I would never know it. <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> but that's, I, 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 that's why I love teaching college students. I really do. Well, yeah. Father Thomas, uh, of the letters I've not asked about specifically, which one or two would you want our listeners to know about before we finish out today? This is your chance. Convince our people to buy this book. Hmm. Honestly, I, I really like the, the first letter, which is an introductory one to the reader. It uh, is the occasion for me to explain who I am, where the idea for this book came from. And it, it hones in on a couple of the main themes overarching in the, in the letters. Um, there's a, a wonderful quote that I, I draw from T.S. Eliot's poem, Four Quartets, and it actually inspired the, the title of the book. The, the idea of, of writing letters to dead people is frankly an unorthodox one, and I, I recognize that, but I see in it a, a great opportunity to engage in a conversation across the boundaries of, of life and death. The quote from Four Quartets is this, um, And what the dead had no tongue for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. And that's the the origin of the title of my book, Letters of Fire. Mm. So the, the letter to the reader is, is a favorite of mine because I get to spell out what exactly my, my motives were. In terms of other letters, the one to Einstein mm-hmm. was a rather short one, but a very pressing one as far as I'm concerned. I, I asked him about his understanding of, of creation and the mind that he acknowledged to be behind the creation of our universe. He was more of a um, pantheist in the order of uh, Spinoza, who would see logic at work in the unfolding of of the cosmos, but couldn't understand it as a personal being. And I I gently press Einstein on on that a little bit in challenging him to um, see whether or not he can go beyond a simple mind or, or logos who who brought the, the universe into being. The very idea of a mind seems to presuppose some personhood. So that was an enjoyable letter to write. Probably the most personal one for me was a letter to a pretty unknown fellow named Brooke Behringer. So I grew up in Nebraska, and Brooke Behringer was a quarterback for the college football Cornhuskers when they were winning their national championships in the mid-90s. And he died tragically in a plane crash just after um, they won their their national title in, in 95. So he was a, a childhood hero of mine, and I simply wanted to, to thank him for his example of Christian living and humility. During his uh, career at Nebraska, he was 
benched because there was a, another quarterback named Tommy Frazier who was very good as well. And Brooke took that benching with utter class and put the team before himself. And I was really drawn to that. And maybe one final letter. Oh, the one to Abe Lincoln I, I really like. I talk about providence, the nature of, of Lincoln's belief in, in God guiding the course of history. And the one to Coldplay, too. That's the, the one exception to my rule of writing to dead people or folks who wouldn't be able to respond to me. Um, I talk about their album, Viva La Vida, or Death and All His Friends. And I think of it as a, a great touchstone of postmodern thought regarding God and, and life and death. There are so many sections and lyrics in those songs which speak of the desire for God and for meaning and their Christian references, scripture references, but at the same time, the, the singer Chris Martin is convinced that God can't be there. So there's a nostalgia for the divine and the absence of God in his present day life. And I just love meditating on, on those, those mysteries that the album features. Good, good. Um, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and head off this comment before one of our listeners make it. Yes, there are Cistercian monks more up-to-date on pop music than I am. So there, I made the joke. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> Here at the end, I want to return... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the, the notion of the monk knowing pop culture is is true, but, but a bit misleading. I, I'm not a, a totally cloistered monk living out in the woods without access to, to these things. I, <laughs> I live in a monastery that has teaching as one of its main charisms. And so I, I'm, I try to be up to date on culture for the sake of, of my students being aware of, of what they're listening to, what they're thinking about trying to engage them. And so that goes for the, the middle schoolers and high schoolers at our Cistercian school and also the, the University of Dallas where I teach. Very good, very good. Well, here at the end, I want to return to the form of the book again. Uh, your own university education culminated with a doctorate in scripture, so I assume you spend a fair bit of ink on epistles and on sermons. When I read this collection, I felt like I was reading a collection of postmodern sermons as much as I was letters to fictional characters. Were you perhaps writing sermons on the sly here? <laughs> That's a good question. I never thought I was surreptitiously slipping in a sermon under the guise of a letter. In fact, I was aiming at an audience that would not normally pick up a book of sermons or might not even set foot in a church to listen to a sermon. Well, hence on the sly. But might be intrigued <laughs> on the sly. <laughs> but might be intrigued but might be intrigued by the the format of a, a letter, a conversation across centuries to to people on on subjects that are current and and interesting. So I I wouldn't uh, I would defend myself against the accusation of, of writing sermons on the slide. I think the, <laughs> the the format of a letter is a self-standing one. It's unfortunately going out of style 
as the the age of email comes to dominate and practicalities dominate over over things like leisure. So I would I would just say that that the goal of of the letter is to get people to think about a certain issue and to allow them to enjoy that that musing in a way that you might not be able to with a sermon or mm-hmm. some more overtly theological um, format. Very good. And before we close out, I just want to say that uh, I wish the age of email dominance were more dominant. There are some students who will never respond to my emails, but that's another <laughs> conversation for another day. Indeed. Um, yes. Father Thomas, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about epistolary literature, the Bible, Babe Ruth, or whatever else you want to talk about as we head for the doors today? Well, I would encourage your listeners to write letters by hand, not by email. It's a dying art, and if we can preserve that, I think we preserve an element of our humanity that is being chipped away in in various ways. I would encourage them to to read the letters of St. Paul in in the New Testament. But above all, I would I would ask them to to pray and to ponder ways in which they can reach the culture at large and specific friends of theirs who might not be interested in going to church on Sunday, but might be very willing to think of a different angle and approach to a question like evolution and creation or the dignity of the human person or the the nature of prayer, the possibility of, of providence guiding our lives. Um, I think this this book of mine is is an attempt to to bring my Christian faith to bear on a culture which is largely forgetful of its own Christian roots. And so in an effort to remind people of that great tradition and the riches it has to offer, I would hope that this model of of letter writing, of initiating a conversation can can be of some benefit to people who are looking for a way to to engage that culture. Father Thomas, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's my pleasure, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and jumping in with us. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.